Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the fate for jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a band leader, composer, arranger, and bassist from Philadelphia, Conrad Kush. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Conrad Korsh with us. I said your name correctly, right? Korsh. Yes. Korsh. Yep. Good. Okay. Close well, enough. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Can you give us an introduction of yourself? Well, I'm here in New York City where I've been living for the past 27 years. And I'm from Philadelphia originally. Two great music towns. And somehow I've managed to make a living as a bass player and a musician all this time, which is shocking, but wonderful. Okay. Uh, where were you born and raised? In New York? In Philly. In Philly, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was there for 22 years. 22 and years. a couple and of months after I graduated college, I moved uh, up to the city, up here to New York. And where did you do your undergrad? Temple University. Oh, you're really Philly, okay. <laughs> North Philly. I grew up in Northeast Philly. Okay. So are you close with Christian McBride? You know, it's funny. We went to the same music school, Settlement Music School, and there was like a handful of branches, and he was in the downtown branch, which was like the hippest one. <laughs> you know, he was there with uh, Joey DeFrancesco and some other great players. But um, I was in the Northeast branch so i didn't get to know him and even though we're about the same age he was like already up in new york playing with joe henderson and guys like that before i even was in college i think you know so i don't know him really you know okay because when i think of bass players and i think of philly unfortunately of course yeah (laughs) of course yeah there's some other great guys down there that that i do know the gerald veasley comes to mind electric bass um and there's so many great guys in and out of there. So what was your reason before moving to New York? Um, <laughs> I, my teacher encouraged it, my bass teacher in college, but he kind of subliminally, like he would just start saying stuff in my last year, like, um, well, you know, when you graduate and you move to New York, blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, wait, hold on. When I moved to New York, what are we talking about? And he would say, well, you're not going to just stay in Philly, are you? I mean, you're already doing all these gigs. You're playing with half of your teachers in college and you're doing jazz and this and that. And the other thing, you're just going to do that for the next 50 years of your life or you're going to take a chance and see what else is out there. And um, so he started pushing, you know, he said, you can always come back if it doesn't work out, you'll be back. People aren't going to forget who you are. and It's only a hundred miles away. You can come back and forth. And then my like college sweetheart at the time was pre, uh, getting ready to do grad school in New York. So she took an apartment in the city and I ended up uh, moving up with her. That's how it started. And then the relationship quickly fell apart. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I moved out and I've been on my own, you know, ever since for the most part. And what were your first gigs or assignments? Well, I, you know, I had a car at the time, and I so I, I would drive back to Philly on the weekends. I made a rule for myself that I would only come back on the weekends. 
I had a bunch of students and I had like an original rock band and I was playing regularly with a guitar player named Jimmy Bruno, who's like a local hero down there and who used to kick my butt. I learned a lot from. So there was a lot of reason to still keep going back and forth. Like that was like my, instead of getting a job at Tower Records or like waiting tables or something, I would drive home on the weekends and play little gigs and, um, and teach. And I was in a Brazilian band called Minas, stuff like that. <clears throat> and then I made myself stay in the city during the week and go out and do jam sessions and uh, take lessons and just shed, shed, shed. And I think the first gig I got was just uh, a bass player that I met sitting in a, one of the jam sessions, uh, couldn't make a gig in Jersey. It was like a $50 gig out in the middle of New Jersey and he needed someone that had a car and he knew I had a car. So he sent me as a sub, but that was like after I'd been in town for a couple months, I guess. And uh, it was just so exciting. Like I got a gig in New York City because I was out pounding the pavement and sitting in. Um, and then, you know, one thing leads to another thing. That was that was a jazz gig, and then I was always uh, interested in doing a variety of things too. So I'd be hanging out doing jam sessions at the um, jazz clubs, and then go to like uh, the bitter end and sit in on the like funk rock jam session down there. So then I'd meet that group of people, and then I would hang out at like the Brazilian music scene and meet those people, and just kind of tried to cast a wide net which always made me happiest anyway, musically, rather than just playing one type of music. Okay, so is that something you suggest to people when they first leave university to explore well, every single avenue? Because I know some people who have tunnel vision that say, I want to be a jazz artist or I want to be in the pit of an orchestra. Yeah, I mean, I can't, uh, everyone has to go their own path. Like if I play electric bass and upright bass, right? So inherently there's different styles of music that are going to come along with those. And I always enjoyed playing those kinds of, those different styles of music. But if, if I was only an upright bass player and I did a degree in classical music and that's all I wanted to do, I wouldn't like, you know, I wouldn't try to force, I wouldn't say you've got to go out and do all these other things, you know, do what you're good at and do what you're feeling and what your, what your heart, tells you to do but for me it made sense <laughs> some things I resisted a little my my teacher I, I was very lucky uh that he had a chair on a Broadway show called Greece it was the re like the revival of Greece back in uh, the mid 90s with like Brooke Shields and Rosie O'Donnell and all those guys. and so w when I moved to town like I had no interest in doing Broadway theater I'm like I want to play jazz. I want to get into the rock scene. I want to hook up on some tours and do that kind of stuff. And he basically made me sub for him, uh, which I didn't even, I, I resisted, but then I went and did it. And I didn't realize at the time what a golden opportunity he was giving me because that's a really tough nut to crack to get into that scene. And I guess that's an example of going a little bit outside of your, <clears throat> what you thought you wanted to do when you moved somewhere, but it ended up, being a great uh, career move. And, well, two things on that, because Goose is one of the plays I don't know. Is that a, Was that on Broadway or off Broadway at the time? Which one? Goose, the one that your t t teacher mentioned. Oh, Grease. Oh, Grease. Grease. I thought you yeah. said Grease. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, yes, Grease. Okay, I You're saw that in the early know, 90s, mid-90s, yeah. when it was there. Yes. Boom. Da -da. Yes. Da -da. 
Yeah. And, you know, he basically said, look, you, you know, you've accumulated this skill set through your training in school. And now is a chance, like, think of that as your toolbox, you know, get your union card and go to work and pull out your toolbox and do the, the union gig and make the money. And you're going to meet other people that are doing the same thing, but who are also in other scenes playing jazz and playing rock music, doing all that stuff. And, you know, like use that as, as an opportunity to make your money so that you can go and do your creative thing and not have to like sweat the rent every month. Okay. You're probably the first person I had on that I actually could ask some of these questions to because okay. I'm not, I assume it's 802, right? Local 802? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you become a member of that? Man, uh, it's a lot easier than you think. <laughs> you just go down there and pay the membership fee and uh, you get your card. I don't think, um, especially these days, I think they'd be happy to take your money. <laughs> you know, you could say, I'm a professional whistler. They'd be like, all right, that's $200. Here's your union card. Oh, you know? okay. But, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to start pimping you for gigs. It, it, you know, the union doesn't necessarily find you work. There, there are certain situations where, where they can, but it's more like they're sort of a gatekeeper to establish minimum scales and working conditions uh, so that it's a fair playing field, you know. Um, otherwise... Like Broadway scale, for example, <clears throat> you could have some producer or some show saying, oh, we're going to pay you this much, you know, but we're going to pay that guy that much and we're going to pay you this much. And then everybody be climbing over each other to like work for $10 less than the other guy so that they can get a gig. It's a race to the bottom, you know. Um, but it is, it's really a great thing with, uh, that they have a health plan established and there's a pension plan, which is... Um, has had some trouble lately, but um, just the fact that there, that that exists, you know, and I've been on the union health plan for some time now. Um, the, the way that works is when you do union gigs, the person that pays you also pays like a small amount into the health plan. And then when you earn enough on that plan, then you get on, the, you get on, you get the coverage, you know what I mean? Okay. So you have to do enough union work to be on the plan. You can't just like buy into it through the union. I wish you could. Okay. That's actually stuff I didn't know much on. Okay. <laughs> so I think in the old days you had to go down and audition to be in the union. And maybe in certain locals it's it still is like that. I'm not really sure. But mm. and what's a musician these days? You know, like That's you a got, whole lot of conversation. <laughs> garage band. <laughs> yeah. Like like you're a musician, right? What is really jazz? What is really? Ooh, yeah. I know, I know. That's mm -hmm. not good. I go there right now. <laughs> so you you're in the pit in Broadway, and did you ever have those moments where like this is monotonous? I feel like I'm better than this. Uh, not that I feel like I'm better than this, but monotonous. Yeah, I mean it's eight shows a week, and like the art to that part of the art is that you're you're playing that show the same way every time, you know, because these people, if a show, if, if you're in Cats for 17 years or whatever, and, you know, 16 and a half years into it, somebody's coming from wherever and to see the show for the first time, you still need to present that show exactly how it was meant to be presented. 
in its original form. So it's not like you could start, you know, doing your own thing and improvising and changing it all up. So there's there's sort of a Zen <laughs> art to that of like being able to to do that monotony uh, and to go in there night after night and stay focused and and nail the parts. Um, it's interesting, like the way the industry is though. When I started doing it, like I said, I kind of resisted, right? I was 22 years old. My, um, my teacher said at the time I was the youngest guy subbing on Broadway. But now kids are coming out of Berkeley and wherever, like moving to New York City with the goal of being on Broadway. Like that's their goal, even though they have jazz degrees and stuff. It's, I just think the industry has changed. And also Broadway has become like, I guess, a hipper scene conceptually, you know, you have shows like, um, obviously Hamilton, things like that. It's changed. It's not, it's much less traditional than it used to be. And so, um, I think people, younger people are more excited about playing that kind of music, A and B, just about the idea of that being a dependable source of work. Okay. Well, you, but that's, uh, a whole other thing about stability versus where I'm not going to try to go on a rant today. I might end up on one, but let's try not to. So. I think I just got off of one. <laughs> so, so you got like, like you said, contemporary new musicals. You were in, in the Heights. Uh, I, I was subbing in the Heights. No, in the, yeah, subbing mm -hmm. on In the Heights. So yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. Did that one of these give you excitement? Was it different for you? Was it? Yeah, actually, yeah. Obviously, that was Lynn Manuel Miranda. Speaking of um, Hamilton, but that music uh, playing all the all the Latin stuff and all the different styles of it within that world, it was really exciting because it's so bass centric. That music, bass and drums. So, um, and you know, the percussionists and the drummer were just killer and. <clears throat> the conductor had was had very high standards, you know, so the the band was always in top shape and it it remained challenging to me at all times. Like I never felt like I could phone it in. Um, but subbing, you know, subbing on Broadway, in my opinion, is one of the hardest things to do because of that, you know, think about you're subbing for someone that has been playing the show eight shows a week, you know, for maybe for years, and then you got to go in there as a substitute and sound and feel exactly like him. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest compliment you can have as a sub is when you're walking out of the theater, have someone else in the band say, oh, I didn't even know you were here tonight. <laughs> you know, I thought it was the regular guy. <clears throat> so it's not about being, it's not about your individuality in that case. It is if you're the regular guy and you are helping to create the book, you know, the base book, then you get to have, you often get to have some input throughout the rehearsal and workshop process. So that's, that's where you get to do a little bit of your thing. Okay. So how did your experience on Broadway and off Broadway get you the Tony's gig? Because when we were trying to originally plan this interview, you were telling me that you have to practice for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, how did that? I mean, obviously, just being known as being in that scene shows that I'm able to read music and follow conductor and play various styles of music. And um, 
playing upright and electric bass is a big help. Uh, actually, you know, it's funny because, you know, I guess everybody that is in the Tony's orchestra does do Broadway shows, but some of them are more like, I think of them more as studio musicians than I do as Broadway guys. Although a lot of times those two things intertwine. But um, my direct contact was the, uh, the contractor, who's the person that is hired to put the musicians together for that show, um, was also the contractor for the East Coast broadcast of the Jerry Lewis MDA telethon. And I played in the house band for that for 10 years. And um, so she knew my skill set and she also knew that I knew how to, you know, handle myself on live TV. Cause that's another thing when the red light goes on, <laughs> coming back from commercial break. So, so um, yeah, she thought of me. Um, I'm grateful for that. And I guess maybe she then ran me past the conductor and musical director who checked out my website or whatever. And they agreed to give me a shot at it. That was the first year I did it was 2015, I believe. And uh, thankfully they've been calling me every year since then. Okay. Because like yeah. I said, that's just like another dream gig that people... Oh man, yeah. That That is one of the hardest gigs I I do ever. You know, ever? Yeah, you're, it's just like you're pl subbing on one show is hard enough, right? And then if you're playing the Tonys, you might be playing music from 10 different shows. And there, there's like 10 different conductors that are coming in at the rehearsals and they throw music in front of you. You start in rehearsals at nine in the morning and you haven't seen the music before. So it's like, boom, nine o'clock, they pop the music on your stand and they're counting it off and you're just like sight reading it and trying to keep up. You know, and one guy conducts like a classical guy, another guy conducts like a rock guy and, you know, I'm like bowing the bass on one song and the next song I'm like playing electric bass with a pick and um, just like the amount of focus and, you know, you don't want to, there's like one bass player in the orchestra, you know. I know <laughs> that. There's no hiding. It's not like, ooh, which, which guy made that mistake, you know, in the bass section? Well, yeah, I am the bass section. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. So you're saying that's harder than doing a studio artist, in your opinion? Than doing, a, uh, what do you mean than doing a studio artist? Okay, like so you're doing an album. A, yeah. For like, I don't know, we'll just say Quincy Jones, okay? Okay. I Is wish, the reading yeah. harder for the Tonys <laughs> or for Quincy? There, I don't know if there may not even be reading on um, Quincy's thing. There might be or there might not be. It depends. It you know, is it, is it like a three piece band? You know, am I doing a bass overdub that, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, it could be anything. Yeah. It could be a whole orchestra and you're reading it down. Um, that would depend. But I mean, often the like artist album type things are like you, you might have a, a chart or you might not you might just work the tune up in the studio. They might play you a demo and everybody makes their own notes. You know, there might be like, I, I did some stuff for Phil Ramon and, um, you know, he's obviously a great producer and, uh, same with Richard Perry working with guys like that, the old school, like a lot of it just happens kind of in the studio as a family <laughs> and they sort of will mold you know, it, uh, in my opinion, 
the big part of producing is like hiring the right people for the right project and letting them do their thing because that's why you chose those people. And then it starts to develop and you, when, when you hit a wall or if it starts going a little bit left of what you, what your vision was, that's when you start reeling people in and making suggestions or whatever. Sometimes it just happens automatically like magic and sometimes things get, you know, the people spend days on, or, or weeks on songs and they keep changing and re-recording and they replace a musician or two or they add and they take away. Okay. I would say, in my experience, the Tonys is scarier. <laughs> it actually sounds far <laughs> yeah. worse than a studio yeah. session. So, okay. Yeah, you know, there's uh, most of the time you have a chance to sort of do your thing in, in the studio. That, you know, there's some, like, the, the studio work is so broad, too. You know, are you playing on a film soundtrack? That might be different than you're, and then you might be in a section with a few other bass players and you're reading everything note for note. But since you specifically said about working with artists, I went down that road. Yeah, that was... Mm -hmm. Far more dense. <laughs> okay, so tell you us. You have to edit this. No, 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 that's good. No, I'm not going to edit that. I'm just saying that was far more of a better answer than I was hoping. all the kilobytes available on the uh, I got all the, on the internet. Don't worry about that. We used up the internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so from the Tonys this year, tell me something that happened off the scenes that you're willing to share, me, share with me that <laughs> tells me the pressure or the real severity of that. Because you said the red light comes on, time to go. Um, yeah, well, off the scenes. Hmm. I mean, one thing you might not have considered is that when they, as they uh, are announcing the awards, nobody knows who won, right? So, and we got to play the show on and off when they announce the awards. So you have music from like five different shows up on your stand. And even the conductor is listening and it's like, and the winner is, you know, Name a show, <laughs> right? The Lion King, and it's like, and then it's like, okay, number three, Lion King. Here we go, six, seven, eight, go. <laughs> like, and everyone's like, what? You know, I don't. Is it electric bass? Is it upright bass? You know, when you try to get your eyeballs in the right spot to the music, so that's nerve wracking. Um, and there's always stuff. Again, being live TV, you have music up on your stand, and the speeches inevitably go too long, right? So. You have music that you're supposed to play coming back in from commercial, and then the uh, director is looking at the clock and going, "Cut the music coming back from commercial. Go straight to the speech or whatever." You know, and then the guy who's supposed to make a speech is waiting to hear the music, <laughs> so he knows when to start talking. Then there is no music, and then he's like, "Oh, there's no music. Where's my cue?" <laughs> that that happened this year, but um, yeah, it's live. It's always Something's going to go like that. There's so many moving parts, man. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> from Broadway, you end up on TV, or is it during the same time? Explain to me the TV problems. Because you do a lot of live shows at one point, right? Uh, you mean like playing on the Tonight Show? Or yeah, like, like Tonight that. Show, like, Saturday Night Live. As if, yeah. Well, Saturday Night Live, I was filling in in the house band which was like such a uh, dream come true. I was know, about like, to say, that's another kid. dream come true gig <laughs> that you just happen to have. Oh man, yeah. I mean, that I can just remember being a, a, like a kid, like sneaking 
to watch Saturday Night Live late at night. I probably wasn't supposed to be watching. And even then, like the band has always been such an integral part of that show and the sound of the band, you know. Um, and to eventually be living in New York City and then get the call to be a substitute in that group was just mind blowing, you know. Um, and that's, you know, that has a lot of the same uh, things like the Tony's, the live TV thing, coming back from commercial, cut this, or, oh, we're going, um, we're not coming back from commercial, you know, like go back to, <laughs> go back to bar 12. <laughs> Those kind of things are being shouted down your headphones while you're playing <laughs> this song. Like, okay, take the code, we're coming in from commercial. Okay. Oh, nope. Nope. We're not back. DS. DS. <laughs> e flat. E flat. You know, and you're like finding, trying to find the bar number. But that's one thing. The, the, the thing with playing um, on a show like The Tonight Show or something like that with a musical guest is a little diff different. Um, you know, then, then you're, they've really, they've sort of carved out the time for you and you're on stage behind the curtain or whatever, waiting to go like, five or 10 minutes before your segment comes up and they just count you down. Uh, the um, Jay Leno or whoever it is, well, <laughs> was back then, would um, introduce the band and the curtain starts going up, somebody counts the song off and boom, there you go. And you've probably rehearsed that same song 25 times. <laughs> yeah. So you just in, have it. First in a rehearsal studio with the artist and then that morning for sound check and then three more times for the director to like get their camera shots set up. So it's, it's pretty rare, but still, yeah, when that red light goes on, you know, it's nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. Is the camera on me? I don't want to make a stupid face and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to mess up. Uh, but funny, then there's like the Tony, speak back to the Tonys, there was a time when I actually did it as part of a show too. I was in a, in a Broadway show called Swing back in like 1999, 2000, and we were nominated. So we got to perform on the Tonys. And so I was like in uh, costume on stage playing the bass because the band was like part of the show on stage. Oh. Uh, but that was much less nerve wracking than being in the house orchestra. Because by that point, you know, I knew, I knew swing inside and out. Okay, so out of your all your late all your television shows, late night or primetime television shows that you've seen mm -hmm. or you played on, which one of them was the most ah uh, moment for you? Oh God, there's a few. Well, you know the SNL thing again blew mm -hmm. my mind, and um, probably you know the, the the literally the very first gig I ever did with Rod Stewart was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And I hadn't played on that show before ever. So there I am out in LA playing with Rod Stewart on The Tonight Show. I was like, wow, is this really happening? Which song was it? Uh, ooh. Um, oh, you're killing me. I know, I should look on my own website. I think there's a video of it. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have to edit this while I look up. <laughs> this will be a part. There was, ah, uh, I can think it started out, do, 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 do. I can actually, I could probably play the song, and, and but I wouldn't even know the name of it. Let me think. Uh, it was when he did the um, American Songbook. 
I feel, um, I fell in love. Uh, no, okay. no, it was it was upright bass. Oh, these foolish things. Oh, these Boom. foolish things. Yeah, these foolish things. Yeah, he. It was. Uh, I was playing upright bass, and he was when he was doing the American Songbook like jazz standards records. Yeah. Okay, Happy so editing. <laughs> Enjoy the did, editing. How did that? With first of all, I'm just curious. Also, <laughs> Jay Lennon, the cool guy. Yeah, yeah, he really was, man. Uh, you know, I was surprised. He's very, he was very personable. Okay. Yeah, more so than some of the others. Well, I love his car show. That's why I had to ask that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. He was chill. He was like down to earth, friendly. You know, he, he didn't get like this elitist kind of vibe from him at all. You know, some some people don't even some people in his position don't even make eye contact, you know, where he'd come in and be like, hey, guys, what's happening? You know, hey, okay, that's good. Where's Rod? I wanted to go ask him something. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, Rod is down the hall. Mm, okay, so how did you get... So you perform with Rod Stewart off his show, and that's how you got that gig? Um, no, I got that gig. It, it's funny because I... Um, well, can you hear the kids? You hear those kids? Hmm? Can you hear these kids outside? No. Okay, Am I supposed good. to? I hear them in my headphones. Oh. Okay. Um, how did I get the Rod Stewart gig? It's a funny story because I basically, I, my, my teacher, back to him again in college, kind of like scared me into playing upright bass. Right? I, my first year of college, I was only playing electric bass. And he pointed out that, you know, I was doing a jazz degree and I was going to graduate with uh, having only studied electric bass. And then I'd be out on the streets competing with people for work who were playing upright bass in the jazz field. And like, why would anybody hire me over them if I didn't even play the instrument? You know, so I begrudgingly started to study upright bass, quickly fell in love with it. Thank God. But um, the irony is that, uh, it was the upright bass that actually got me in the door with Rod Stewart. So I ultimately ended up getting like the biggest rock gig of my life by playing the jazz instrument that I resisted. Um, and, but the way that I ended up on there was he put out his first record of the American Songbook mm. uh, with Clive Davis and the label, Sony wanted to put together a band of like a jazz band from New York City, but who could also play rock and roll and kind of had a rock and roll enough look in case we were um, required to also play some of his rock material on any of these shows. So uh, they contracted, they contacted a contractor, Jill Delabate, who uh, I had worked with, um, with uh, producer John Leventhal and drummer Sean Pelton, who was actually the drummer from Saturday Night Live. And she uh, talked to those guys about if I, if I would be a good guy for that gig and they both vouched for me. And so she hired me for that group and then I actually uh, recommended a couple of other players for the group. And it, it, at first it was just gonna be a half a dozen TV shows, Good Morning America, uh, Letterman, Leno, you know, the, the typical like album push. And then that morphed into more shows and a live DVD. And um, then the thing like 
was a huge success. So next thing you know, they're doing another record and the following uh, uh, record came out and they put, they called me again to do all the promo for that. And that was a huge success. <laughs> and it became apparent that they were going to need to start to include that material in his tours. Um, he couldn't just be doing the rock and roll thing when there were like mil millions of people probably buying these records. He had like a whole new audience now that were, gonna, that were expecting to hear that music live. So uh, at that point, they asked me to audition for the rock band on electric bass because I'd been working with him for a year already and he'd never heard me play electric bass. So um, I did that audition and then I, I joined the next tour and ended up staying there for another 15 years. <laughs> which um, after a couple of years, they actually phased out the American songbook stuff and it was back to just rock and roll again and all of his hits. But we did keep the upright bass in the set. We would do an unplugged set, stuff like Have I Told You Lately, ballads, things like that. Okay. Uh, what was your favorite thing about touring with him? Ooh. Oh, just recording with him. <clears throat> well, I mean, the, it, the touring part, I mean, I got to travel the, the world first class for the most part. Um, and I've been to places that I would have maybe never been to and met all kinds of different people. And I would try to, I would try to roll things into life experiences too. Like we did South Africa, we did a tour down there for a couple of weeks and then I stayed, everybody else flew home and I stayed behind and did a safari. <laughs> you know, like I'm already there. I got the plane ticket we paid for those kinds of things. And we did, uh, you know, I met Prince Charles a few times. We played at his house for his 60th birthday party. <laughs> uh, we did the concert for Diana. That was amazing. Um, Rock in Rio a few times. I got to musical direct the band at um, Jazz Fest in New Orleans and at the uh, Endymion Parade opening at the Saints Stadium for the uh, for Mardi Gras. I mean, there's so many, so many great experiences, you know. Okay, wow on that. Yeah, I didn't mind the money. <laughs> I, I feel you on that. And what was your favorite Rod song to perform? Oh, geez. I don't know. You know, I liked, um, I really liked doing the acoustic set and um, doing Have I Told You Lately because he would give me an upright bass solo. And it was just nice. After all this, like, rock and roll and pop and all this stuff to just do something sort of quiet and to be able to improvise and, and do it on a ballad in like a sensitive way, you know, like after all this arena stadium bombastic stuff, that was, that was, uh, that was probably one of my favorite musical artistic <laughs> moments. I was, I was also used to play as like a slap bass solo at the end of, do you think I'm sexy? But it was, uh, that was always on the encore. <laughs> And, um, you know, there's like balloon, you're getting pelted with balloons because, you know, and he's kicking soccer balls out to the audience. And like, it was like mu music was kind of the last thing, you know, the last focus at that point. And it was basically like me and like a, a drum, a drum loop, you know, it's like, all right, now I'll slap the bass for two minutes while I go kick soccer balls. I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that part about a show. I, yeah, I know. Oh, here comes the police. You hear them? It's New York City living. <laughs> you hear those sirens. 
I'm nine floors up, but, but yes, I do like the unplugged version of Have I Told You Lately. Mm. So, you yeah. guys on point on that. And every now and then on the radio, when I listen to the OD station, they play that <laughs> right. version. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, you know what, though, on the Rod thing, well, I should mention that he, uh, I also got to do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction with The Faces, which was Rod's band before he went solo. And with like Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones. And um, it was all the original members um, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Except ironically, Rod did not make that performance because he got sick. Uh, so Mick Hucknell from uh, Simply Red filled in and, and killed it and did a great job. But um, to be able to say that like I did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at all, you know, but especially with the faces was pretty awesome. And then we did a reunion gig um, in England so that was, I mean, that was sort of just happened through being the bass player in Rod's band at that time. I'm sure if it was, you know, if there was another bass player in Rod's band, he would have done it. But I was fortunate to have been the guy around during that time. Like I say, and I say this every now and then, I want to be you when I grow up. Like, <laughs> the stuff you're doing. Well, you, you have to start by not growing up. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... After Ron, or while you're with Ron, how did you end up in these movies? Because then I find out you're in music and lyrics, and that movie's this class. We all know who that's making fun of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, I'm in a, like a half a dozen movies. It's so funny, you know, how that happened. The first one was um, Made in Manhattan, the Jennifer Lopez thing. And uh, that, that was, I'm jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> That was through uh, another contractor. You know, there's a handful of contractors in the city that hold a lot of the cards, you know. And the other one is uh, is Sandy Park. And again, circling back to um, Sean Pelton, the drummer, um, who, you know, he's so established in the industry and, and so great that he's like, if he gives his stamp of approval, like, you're hired. You know what I mean? It's not like, hey, um, Sean recommended you. Can you send us your demo reel and this and that and the other thing? Or like, you know, your resume. And all. It's just like, hey, Sean told us to call you. So <laughs> we're, we're calling. Um, and so he connected me with the, uh, Sandy, the contractor. And in that case, actually, they do need to see photos and things like that because the director has an idea of what the band is supposed to look like and, and whatnot. So... Um, that was, that was, um, Made in Manhattan. So then I was sort of on her list. And then as other things came up, then she already knew what, like, I would work for, for her needs. And so she started, she called me for a couple more of those. Um, and then Jill, who had hired me for the Rod thing, she actually did music and lyrics. She pulled me in on that. And what was another one? Most of them... Being in the movies is like sidelining, you know, like you're fake playing to someone else's um, bass playing, right? But there was one where I actually got to play on the soundtrack. Um, it Begin Again, and it was called, it was with uh, Keira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. So I was hired to play on the soundtrack. And then in the studio, the director is like, hey, uh, we're shooting this scene with Adam Levine and, you know, we need to put a band together. You want to play bass in that? <laughs> so that was one situation where I got to actually fake play to my real playing. But yeah, it's been, uh, 
it's been, those are the kind of gigs that it's like, you know, the, the aunts and uncles, they get it, you know, like they understand like the non-musicians that are like, wow, Conrad, you, you know, you really did it. You moved to New York and now look at you, you're on the, on the silver screen. You know, meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, I'm fake playing the bass. <laughs> Like, you're on the silver screen good. and you're playing with Adam Levine <laughs> and Jennifer yeah, like, You should have heard the jazz gig I was playing at 3 a.m. last night or this morning, you know, for Pass the Hat for Tips, playing with these monster players. Like, that's why I came to New York. That's the skill set. And then I had to wake up and go do hair and makeup to, like, pretend play bass on some movie. But, you know. Boo hoo hoo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny how you know what how, how people what people identify with success or whatever. I mean, I understand that part is mm. what is really success. Mm -hmm. Some people say mm -hmm. you need to deal with Blue Note as success. Some people see mm -hmm. it as seeing a, a winning a Grammy as success. Mm -hmm. And I could honestly say I heard some albums that won Grammys, and I'm like. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, if you can do what you love to do and and make a living at it, then without, you know, compromising too much of your ideals or whatever, then I guess that's success. But it's a balance, you know. Sometimes, it, look, if you can play the best, your if you could play your own, if you want to play your own music and you could do that six nights a week, but you got to go play a bar mitzvah one night a week, to be able to pay your rent in order to fund that, then great. I guess that's success. I mean, I, I actually used to respect, I have friends that were like, all they wanted to do was play like avant-garde jazz and they didn't want to compromise their musical ideals. So they would get a job, you know, they worked at, like I said, tower records or they would wait tables or do temp work and they would rather do that and that's just a job. They punch the clock and they're emotionally divorced from it, you know? And then they can go, when they play music, it stays sacred and they don't compromise any of their, but for me, I always, it was, it was a balance. Like I'm willing to go do some, like, like I said, like back to that tool, grab your toolbox and go to work, go fix the toilet, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, and cash the check, you know, and it, for me, it's still like, there's always something to be learned by playing any, playing your instrument in any situation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there are a few others I need to ask you about because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper. Yes. Yeah. She, um, well, she was uh, opening for Rod Stewart on my last couple tours and... Um, and I have a lot of friends in her band, you know, and so we would sort of hang, I would hang with those people on the tour and backstage and all that. And I guess I got to know Cindy a little bit. And then I was, at that point, I was musical directing um, the Rod Stewart band and they would do a duet together uh, at some point in, in the show and that song would sometimes change. And so I had to be in contact with her and with him just for musical and logistical reasons and shows so she got to know me as a musical director and i guess she became comfortable with that and um when she uh did one of her annual um what's it, home for the holidays shows that she does it's like a fundraiser for lgbtq um at the beacon theater in new york 
her musical director, who's a friend of mine, was actually unable to make that show that year and, and the rehearsals leading up to it. So it just seemed like natural that they tapped me to fill in for him uh, for that year. And yeah, it was a lot of work. You know, there's all these, all kinds of artists on that. Um, Ani DeFranco, uh, Jackson Brown, uh, who do we have? Sandra Bernhardt, Scissor Sisters, uh, all these people. So it was a lot of prep, a lot of work. Um, but yeah, she's a trip. <laughs> she's, I can she's imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can, You think? You want to give a story or are you able to give nope. a story? Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> I got, listen, I got to still try to keep, keep working for a couple more years. Uh, understood. Okay. Okay. How about <laughs> Hall and Oaks? Mm. Hall and Oaks. Yeah. Uh, uh, T-Bone Walk. God rest his soul. Uh, was he was a great bass player mm-hmm. uh, and musical director. And at at one point he was playing guitar in that group. And um, again, I had a bunch of friends in the band, and there was a Christmas tour um, coming up. Uh, I guess they put out a Christmas record, and they he asked yes. me if I could fill in to play bass and sing backups, and I was like. Yes, like singing backups with Hall and Oates. This is going to be amazing. And it was a month long tour. And I'm also like a Christmas elf, <laughs> you know, like I love the holidays. And I'm like, oh man, this is perfect. And I checked in. This is like, this is years ago, like 2006 or seven. And I checked in with the musical director at the time. And Rod had one gig that was like a private party, like a birthday party. <laughs> But on that gig, we were going to be working in a new um, like utility player uh, and a guitar player or a keyboard player. And then like a utility player was somebody who plays a bunch of different instruments. Mm-hmm. And the musical director was like, man, I really need you at this gig. I can't let you out. And my loyalty was to Rod. And I had to turn down a whole month-long tour singing and playing with those guys because I had to go play a birthday party with Rod. But uh, I regret that that didn't uh, come come to be. But um, I eventually did get to record with them on a record. Uh, Which one? With, uh, it was a, not one of their records. It was a, a record that was a compilation album, which was a fundraiser for something, um, uh, for a stuttering children's theater group, believe it or not. And there were all kinds of, like Carly Simon did something on it. And I actually worked with, Carly also in other, in another capacity, I did a bunch of TV shows, singing and playing with her. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was, I, th- I think I played with a few different artists on that record. I have to check my website again. <laughs> I, I, the reason I have a website is so I can remember what the hell I've done. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to look this up. But um, yeah, so I got to record, I should tell you the name of this, maybe somebody will go buy the record and it will be a, that that group it was called uh listen the name of the record is called listen and it was for a group called an organization called our time which has now changed its name to say which is an acronym for stuttering association of the youth of, of youth i believe and yeah according to my website i recorded with hall and Oates, carly simon duncan chic and adam pascal on that like i said Thank hall you. of a life Thank you, ComradeCourse.com. Did you record with Taylor Swift or did you just perform with her? 
I did a video with her for a song called, I think it was called Back to October. And it aired on a, on a TV special on Thanksgiving back around 2010, I believe. Uh, so technically I did not record with her. I video recorded with her. <laughs> okay, so out of all these artists that you played with, and you don't mm. need to name the person. Okay. Which one of them was like the most awkward? Or tell me the most <laughs> awkward scenario without naming the person. I don't know if there's a way to do that without it being kind of obvious. Oh, is that? Ah, uh, come on. At least work I, with me. <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, I can, okay. I, uh, okay. Some, one particular artist mm -hmm. walked into the rehearsal for day one of rehearsal. Day one for that artist, but the band had been rehearsing for several days without that artist, that, gender neutral artist understood <laughs> because i'm not trying to give any hints and i had a um we, we were all on in-ear monitors you know the the speakers that go inside your ear that you see the, all the artists wearing now and those things especially for me as a bass player they need to be super tight because if the seal breaks where they're like connecting with your ear canal you lose those vibrations and it's basically like hitting a mute switch on the bass, right? So it's very, so it's uncomfortable to be pulling them in and out of your ear all the time. Um, to just to like say something to someone in the room or to talk to the drummer or the guitar player on the other side of the room. So I had set up a talkback mic, um, which is basically just a microphone on a stand that if I spoke into it, everybody could hear me in their in-ear speakers. And um, this particular artist walked in and saw that mic and said, what is that? And I explained what it was for. And that artist then went on uh, a rant <laughs> that um, it basically took my head off, right? And uh, everybody was just, everybody in the room was like jaws on the floor listening to this rant and uh, so, uh, and I like I literally had not played a note <laughs> on the bass or or said anything into that mic at that point and that this was how the day started the day of rehearsal <laughs> gotcha so that uh, it was like th that rant ended after a couple minutes or several minutes and then I was like okay <laughs> what do you want to do now? <laughs> Understood. Hope, yeah. <laughs> I had to be there. But probably better that you weren't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How about this? Change it. The topic completely. Mm. So how has Corona affected you personally? Um, well, besides having it <laughs> in oh. March of 2020, Let's see, I, got, I probably got it on a, uh, I flew on Friday the 13th to Florida uh, to play with Manhattan Transfer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, uh, of course. got up at, you know, 6 a.m. to go do that, 
flew down there, got off the plane. Then they said, okay, get back on the plane. The gig's canceled. Flew back home. And like a couple days later, was having symptoms, but um, which was scary back then um, because it was so early in the game. You know, every day it was a different story. You know? mm -hmm. But it ran its course. And I managed to avoid the hospital and all that stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, I would say, it, you know, it affected me um, in the way that it affected a lot of people where they, you sort of rethink your life and your priorities, you know, like when did, when did anybody have that much time off to just stay home and not like, I've been so focused on work and music and my career and like, that's the number one priority, you know, that like for a freelance musician, like every gig is your last gig, you know, like until the phone rings again. And, and I always say, you, if you want a gig, book a vacation. Right? Cause like every time I book a vacation, <laughs> then a week before the vacation, I get called and offered some great gig that I feel like I can't turn down. And then I got to cancel the vacation because we just jump. Uh, and it's always about the career. And I don't know. So I, I would, like to think that my priorities have shifted a little bit in, in as far as like just slowing down the pace and trying to uh, allow myself some time off. Um, but as things are opening back up again and the calls are coming in, I find myself not, <laughs> you know, cause it feels, it feels good to get back to work and, and get back to uh, playing music. You know, it's like all these years I thought, man, if I could just have one year where I could just lock the door and just stay in and shed, I would come out and I would just be this unstoppable force, like Superman on the base. And myself and so many of my friends, it's like the year has come and gone. And I probably watched everything on, on, there is on Netflix <laughs> and tried every wine club that there is. But I don't think I practiced the base once, <laughs> yeah. but it ah. felt good. It felt good. I have to say it felt good. And I did, you know, I, I learned some software and did some other things. And I, uh, you know, I, I did, I spent time in other things that I felt were productive for my life, but not necessarily um, would improve my chops on the bass necessarily. Okay. <laughs> so, where do you think jazz would, or music in general would be in 10 years? Man, I don't know. Uh, music or a music career. <laughs> From Broadway, how do you think it would be? Yeah. On the movie well, sector, on the TV sector? Yeah. You're one of the only funny. people I could ask those specific questions. <laughs> and when the I, recording sector. When I moved to town, somehow, remember I said I was like doing anything, right? And sitting in a jam. I, I started... Um, playing in some like, um, like a rehearsal, rehearsal big bands. Like there were guys like retired jazz musicians that would like write big band charts and they'd get together once a week. They'd put an actual big band together and play each other's charts down just to, just for fun. And I ended up getting in on that. And all those guys, these guys are in their, you know, seventies and eighties and they would say to me, I don't know how you think you're going to make a living in music. There's no work left out there. You know? And because uh, there was so much more work for them coming up before synthesizers and everything was live music. I mean, the, I think the union went on strike when movies 
added sound because every movie house had an orchestra or a piano player or something to accompany. Oh, real old. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that they were from that generation, but I'm, if you look back, I'm just taking it back to every generation, like the things that sent up, you know, flares in the in the music industry. The and then everybody goes, oh, that's it. That's the end of the music industry. Records, when records came out, it was like, that's the end of the music industry because now people could just buy a song and just play the record over and over and over again. But now nobody buys records. <laughs> so it just keeps disintegrating, I guess you could say, yet... Um, like I find myself now seeing these kids coming to New York and going, I don't know how you think you're going to make it living because every gig I would do in a club, there would be a take a cover charge or the club would actually just pay you. Um, and now it's like a lot of these places, there's no cover and it's like past the hat for, for payment. You know, how are you supposed to make a living doing that? But, and, and the jingle business as, uh, you know, TV commercials, that was a, a regular source of income for so many people. And a lot of that has dried up and, you know, that has to do with technology and also styles of music, you know, like the technology is such that people can do those things from home, but also the style of music is like, well, if we want music to sound like it was created with loops on a laptop, then the way to do that is to hire someone who's going to create it with loops on a laptop. So, uh, I don't know. It's always changing. There's, there's always going to be a need for music. Uh, I hope that it doesn't continually continue to be devalued to the extent that artists are just, no one can really make a living doing it because then I feel like it'll suffer. Um, you know, people aren't going to get pay for the training if there's not going to be any return on their investment. There's always going to be artists. Um, you know, you could, you could be a dentist, but still be a great poet and play the heck out of the guitar. Um, so art is art, and there's going to be a need to create art, and people are going to always have a need to listen to it. But, you know, there's even been, um, on Broadway, there's been attempts to kind of automate the music on Broadway. And this is a situation where uh, the union has really shown its value, you know, because collectively the union coupled with the stagehands union and did all kinds of unions. And, and, you know, it's when we all stick together like that, that we have power, you know, it's a, a, in the freelance kind of world. It's sometimes people don't look at the big picture, everybody's just trying to work. And so they're undercutting each other and they don't realize that the long-term effect of the race to the bottom, you know, yes. in the big picture. Okay, that was kind of <laughs> in a different way, but so, yeah. yeah. Oh man, sorry. On you know, my uh, soapbox here. No, no, that that's yeah. Good to knowledge. I believe in that. You know, I've been I joined the union when I was twenty two years old, and I I never missed a payment. You know, like there's annual dues. So for twenty seven years, I've been paying those dues, even if it's years where I might not have any union work. You know. Um, I just figure it's a tax write-off and it's, <laughs> if you can't spend a couple hundred bucks to keep your union thing happening, then I don't know. I don't know. I, they, they, uh, there's something, they have like a, a monthly publication that shows new and readmitted members. And I see the names of the people, the, re, the, uh, they don't separate who's new and who's readmitted, but there are some luminary, like iconic 
musicians on there that I see their name popping up and it's like a directory, right? Cause like, um, there's a union directory with like address and phone number and email and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And some of these people that pop up on that, I'm like, it, I, I crack up because I know that the fact that they're showing up there means that for the past year or at least one year, they didn't pay their union dues. So they got, they fell off Yeah, and now they had to rejoin because they're going to do some, like a movie soundtrack or a TV show or whatever it is. And so they had to like re up on their thing. It just cracks me up. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's just uh, me. What advice would you give young musicians coming up? Boy. Um, well, I would say to not forget that you're working and you're working with other people. And that there are a lot of great musicians around and you might be great, but there's a lot of other great players. And if there's player A and player B and they are exactly as great of a player, but player B is not a nice person (laughs) or has a big ego and isn't fun to hang out with or, you know, has B.O., like that guy is probably not going to get the call. Player A is going to get the call. So I would I would say I think sometimes people uh, let they let their they let their ego get in the way sometimes, and that cause that causes problems for them moving their career forward. So if there was one piece of advice, maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm sure when we Hang up, I'll think of 10 other things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what is your dream project? I know you have two albums out. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's funny because if, if I said that my own music was my dream project, then I'm not really backing that up because I'm, I'm not putting effort into getting it out there so much um those i did two albums as a singer songwriter uh and it was a creative outlet for me especially the first one which is very like ballad heavy poetic singer songwriter Uh, i wrote string quartets for it and all this and that uh, that i put together um almost as like a reaction to what i was doing on the road with rod because rod's gig was like a big pop thing and like a big show and it got showier and showier especially after we started playing in Vegas and I just wanted to do something like completely opposite of that and flex different muscles um and I produced it and um I I my second one I mixed um but yeah I wanted to get that out there that part of my personality um and if I, I did do some touring with it and I had some promoters pick me up and book me on some, I toured in uh, Norway a couple of times. I played around England and Germany and I did some shows in New York, but being the artist, songwriter, producer, publicity agent, booking agent, band leader, it was just too much. It was like burnout. So uh, if somebody else uh, came across my music and fell in love with it and wanted to take the reins and then uh, offered me the opportunity to focus on that as a career focus, 
that would be amazing. But um, I, even though in a way that would be like the dream, I don't have the energy <laughs> to try and do that on my own. So I don't know. I get it. So that's that. Who knows? I'm, maybe I'm living the dream. Who knows? You know, I'm making a living, playing music, playing a variety of music. I'm I'm still challenged, and um, well, I get to be creative. I get to work with people that I love most of the time. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. And what is the best compliment you have ever received? Um, <laughs> I could, I'm sure there's a joke in here somewhere. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What's the best compliment? I, you know, it's that, this is going to sound funny, but when my bass teacher from college, who I owe so much to, um, hired me to put together a band to play at his daughter's wedding. <laughs> I know that might sound funny, but that's a very big day for him and for her. And he's a musician and he taught me music and the bass. And he had a lot of students in his life. And to trust me to, to take the reins on such an important event for him was, uh, it was, as you say, such a compliment. You know, I was so flattered by that. And it might it might sound silly, you know, it's a wedding band, but to me it just meant it just meant so much more. No, that's understandable. And no, I'm not trying to get into that wedding band situation because I have some <laughs> jazz artists who feel like oh, I'm above that. <laughs> which yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's some great I've met some great musicians playing those kind of gigs. I mean it's a, it's been a while since I've done that but um there are some especially in new york there are some great players and i would come off the road i'd do six months straight touring the world with rod and i'd come off the road and like that first saturday i'd be up playing a wedding at the plaza hotel or something because i wanted to stay connected to new york and with these other musicians and play with different people and play different songs and different style music and continue to challenge myself you know, there's, like I said, there's always something to be gained from going out and playing your instrument and challenging, challenging yourself. Um, but yeah, it's not, okay. <laughs> most people don't get into the, get into music for that purpose. But So what would you like to do? Like your next step, if you can make your dream gig? <clears throat> I don't know. It's, you know, it's back to that, that thing. It, it, listen, if you want to hook me up, with a manager and a, and a promoter and a booking agent and I can go do my thing or they just said, Hey comrade, look, you've done so much different kind of stuff. We believe in you and we're going to support you and put you out there, whatever it is you decide to do that. Then, then I could mix it up. That would be amazing. I mean, I have, I play so much jazz at, in New York city and there's very little documentation of that if any, like recorded, you know, you, uh, you you do these live gigs and you pour your heart out and then it just goes out into the universe and that's it and it's gone. And I've played on a lot of recordings in, in, on, for a lot of different artists, but almost no, if, if, if not none of them are like jazz recordings where I get to like really blow. So as far as a project goes, I feel like at some point I would like to document 
my jazz bass playing. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, maybe that's well, it. You shouldn't have a problem doing that. Yeah, I just got to decide to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's that, it's that like life, COVID life reassessment thing too of going like, I also just want to take some time and enjoy my life a little bit. And that's a big undertaking, you know, to make to make a record, put put a group together, choose the music, or write the music. And that's something that I should do. I should I should set that as a life goal, just to have that documented. Okay, well, sir. Before we go, you know me like to show us respects to the artists who came before us. So, in your case, I'm just going to tell you an instrument, and tell me who you would want to play with or who you would hire, okay? Mm, do they have to be? They could be dead. They could be alive. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, good. On trumpet. Miles. Why? Always forward thinking, changing things up, challenging himself, challenging the band. Okay. On saxophone. Coltrane. Why Coltrane? <laughs> Parker. Probably same oh. answer. Same part. Okay, that's yeah. fair. On piano. Hmm. Maybe uh, Herbie. That's tricky. You know, Herbie Hancock, Keith Jarrett, Chick Corea. You gotta name one man. One. Darn it. Oh man. Let's just say Herbie then. And why Herbie over Chick Corea or anyone else? Yeah, see, that's not fair. <laughs> I still need to know why. Yeah. Um, I just feel... Mm, I would say Herbie's thing, you know, because he's tapped more into the electronic music thing um, than, say, Keith Jarrett. And also the way that he incorporates different, um, you know, like pop songs and contemporary artists into his repertoire. I feel like it's a little, you know, it's he's maybe the most open-minded of the three or has had the broadest um, repertoire. But, you know, you could argue that. Look at Chikri. He's got the electric band, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all the acoustic and and electric stuff that he's done, but I'm just gonna, I'll have to stick with, with Herbie, you know, not to mention all his like, just the voicings and the, I just feel like it's like an encyclopedia of harmony, listening to, listening to him every time he plays. Okay. On drums, who? Oh man. This is, this is really hard. John Bonham. <laughs> How about that? Does it have to be jazz? I mean, if it no, does, it doesn't have to be jazz, does, but why John I say, Bonham? screw it, let's put John Bonham in the band. <laughs> oh, okay. With, you know what else, too? It's funny, like Miles, um, Coltrane, and Herbie, they already were in a band. Yes. <laughs> you know, not together, but I don't think Herbie wasn't ever played with uh, Train and Miles, and somebody will, somebody can phone in and tell me that I'm wrong. And if they please do, if I am wrong, because I need top to check of my that head, out. I can't think one, but yeah, trust I me, there are three people who love that. to fact check everything I do. Good. Every episode. I might, see, I might learn something. 
<laughs> dickhead. They were so fine. Not, I don't claim for sure to be a from that one performance they did in like France in like yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. But anyway, yeah, put Bonham in that man. Shit, that imagine that. Bam. Okay. I mean, just bombastic. His his thing to play any kind of music with him. Um, you know, he's got such a rock, blues, R and B. Yes, R and B influence. Whether somebody might want to argue that. And I would argue jazz, you know, not the kind of jazz like we think of, but there is a swing yeah, not to that ahead. pocket. I agree. You know, but that's why it was so random. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, you said if I, if I could choose. I, right? I know. Who would be the bass player? <laughs> you didn't ask about guitar. That's good. Okay. You want to go guitar? Yeah. I was being nice, but who would you be uh, guitarist? And uh, then you got to tell me a bass yeah, player. This is the most out group right here though i'm telling you so i don't know i mean eddie van halen is my guitar hero you know i can't although no i can't yeah although in a group like that i don't know if his improv thing is you know actually i would like to see what herbie does with that yeah he's playing i feel like maybe um you know maybe uh jimmy page Back to the Zeppelin thing. You see, I'm I'm basically just putting my favorite groups together, <laughs> you know, um, that I already loved. Um, I don't know. So on on bass, in that group, mm-hmm. <laughs> who would be a bass player? I can't name. I can't name one name. I mean, uh, all, all all of Miles's bass players are so great. I like I Paul Chambers. So you know, out of I all the bass Paul players, Chambers. even if I put Christian in there, even if I put Esperanza in there, even if I put mm-hmm. Nathan in there, even if I put all these people, you're going to go with only Miles' as bass players? <laughs> no, no. But I don't even know. At this point, I can't tell what kind of music we're playing. <laughs> They'd have to be versatile, you know? Uh, okay. Who's, who's that versatile? Oh, God. This is, the, this is the worst interview you've ever done. Nah, trust this me, it's nowhere near the worst delete. interview I've ever done. <laughs> There's too many to pick from, man. I'm not going to do that to my bass brothers. I'm not going to single one out. You guys have some weird click going, I must say. But you know what? Do you think your bass players? <laughs> so, you know, I like, to, I like to play both instruments. I like to be versatile. So I, I admire those guys. Like, from a technical standpoint, you can't deny... Um, uh, John Patitucci, like what he has going chops wise, you know, on both instruments and with the bow and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know. I, I can't say that he's got to be the only bass player. Okay. <laughs> you know what? what? Can I be in that band? If you Is really want to put yourself yeah. in there, that's some egotistic a, thing. <laughs> I need to step up. Put me in that band. <laughs> Uh, what am I thinking? Trying to get other people gigs. <laughs> Jesus. Tell people your social media where to find you, etc. Oh, <laughs> I got to Google myself to figure that. All right. ConradKorsch.com. C-O-N-R-A-D-K-O-R-S-C-H.com. That's the main source. You can hit me with an email through there, too. But I, got, I am on um, this new thing. just came out. It's called Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me at that name. And then, you know, at, at one point, all the Rob fans ate up all my um, 
you know, you only get, you get 5,000 friends. So they all ate that up. And then, so then I created a second page called Comrade Korsh More. <laughs> so if the one is full, it goes, you know, people dump me and it goes down to $49.99 and then somebody adds me. So go to Comrade Korsh More and there's a music page too. But okay. yeah, they won't let me on Instagram, man. They say I'm too old. So <laughs> <laughs> Babe, whatever, as soon as I join these social media things, it's like, they become not hip anymore. So I'm just going to leave it at Facebook and try to keep my website up from time to time. But, you know. Okay, well, Conrad, thank you for joining us. Once again, <laughs> people like you, where it's everyone and their mother you played with, it's, <laughs> it's a different type of interview. I enjoy yeah. it, though. Thank you so much, sir. <laughs> thank you for considering me. I hope, happy editing. See if you can get this down to maybe three to four hours. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and what is Leanna from Improv Exchange? Thank you. Enjoy your day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs> <laughs>